Welcome back to Fire Along, your host Bradley Tusk. Uh, super fun episode today. Uh, new friend of mine, Lulu Chang Missouri. Um, she's joining us to talk comm strategy. Corey Epstein, who the listeners already know, uh, runs comms at Tusk Holdings. Corey's going to join us as well. Um, so, hi guys, thanks for coming on. Thank Hello. you. So, Lulu, um, I, you and I have just met recently, but it was kind of like one of those like kindred spirit type things when we did. So, you put out this. You have a great Twitter feed, and you put out when the Silicon Valley Bank thing was happening, kind of a, a real-time critique of how they were fucking it up, um, which was great because I remember in, in that moment, instead of me as like comm strategist, it was me as someone with a lot of money in the bank accounts there, uh-huh. and they sent this email saying, everything's fine, there's nothing to worry about, and that moment, the Jordan pulled the fucking money. <laughs> um, so, um, Did you get it out? We did not before. We just like everyone. We got our yeah, got, got our money, back. you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a nerve wracking seventy two hours or so. Um, you have this deep history in comms. You you run comms right now for for Activision Blizzard. Um, you've worked at Substack. You've got your own blog called Flack. That's really great. You went to all these fancy schools. Um, you know, you you've worked at the World Bank, J P Morgan. You have like the, the dream resume here. Um, so I guess the first question is, what made you decide that the comms was where you wanted to focus? Obviously, you could have done anything. What made you choose to do this? I think I kind of fell into it. Okay. So um, I previously was at a communications agency called Trail Runner International, which okay. I got to be the co-founder of with Jim Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. He was the big co-founder. I was the baby co-founder. He had deep, deep experience in comms. Yeah, Jim's like a comms legend. He's, yeah. a, he's, he's a legend. I had zero experience whatsoever. Like, we founded this thing, and I was Googling, like, what is comms? So he so brought what, me so along. So why would Jim, I guess it's a question for Jim, but like, okay, so here's this person who claims she knew nothing about comms, which I don't actually believe the claim, but let's, let's say you're telling the truth. Why would he then say, well, why don't you own part of my company? We professionally eloped. Like we clicked in other ways where we had a similar philosophy. If we want to go that, go out and be really aggressive and be street fighters, we want to weave together, and you do this too. We want to weave together an understanding of policy and politics, international tech, finance, and media all together. Whereas a lot of the comms world is siloed. Like this is your world, that's my world. Yeah. And so we wanted to build those bridges. And I did practically everything except for comms. I worked in policy and geopolitics and across tech and across finance. And so we felt like maybe he could just teach me the rest. And he he did take me under his wing. And it, it does seem like that's what happened. So, okay, so when, from from the moment you knew nothing about it to now, what's the if, if people turn off this podcast after the next minute, what's the one thing that you learned that if people understood it about comms, everything would be a lot easier? That it's about, it's the same as in econ and consumer behavior, that it's about animal spirits. It's about the human psychology of how our brains work involuntarily. And if you understand that, then you can work with it. I don't want to say manipulate because it sounds nefarious, but you can work with the existing pathways of human decision making and always think about it through those terms as opposed to here's what's in my heart and here's what I want to say. I'm going to go ahead and say it, which is sort of what Silicon Valley Bank did. This is the thing that we want to say, calm down. And then... You're not thinking about what is happening inside the human psychology that is going to take what you're saying and turn it into this mysterious alchemy and turn it into something else entirely. All right, so then let, let's let's go into Silicon Valley Bank. So you're you're on Twitter. You're watching this train wreck unfold. Um, obviously, luckily for you, uh, you know you probably weren't too personally impacted by the SVB thing. However, I'm unencumbered. Down, right? right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, you're you're at a tech company, but I'm guessing that their money's not at Silicon Valley Bank. So, 
Um, what first goes through your mind when you see this all happening? So I had been talking to people in tech and VC throughout Thursday, like people that I had previously scheduled catch-ups with that were like, hey, I'm having a really busy day today. I'm like, oh, doing what? Pulling all of our money out and pulling all of our Portco's money out of Silicon yeah. Valley Bank. So I was seeing this just anecdotally from people that I chat with, and then I was seeing publicly what they were saying. And that's when you see, okay, this alchemy is gonna go in a bad place. And so my thread was actually before they went bankrupt. So in the thread, it feels a little bit goofy now looking back at it because it's like, oh, the, the stock's down. But then a few hours later, they right. actually like an hour later, this very soon, they completely, yeah, went down. Um, so when I was watching this happen, there's two things that I was noticing. One was how little they were saying. And two was how slowly they were saying it. Like all through Thursday, I'm seeing this frantic activity of people, of people pulling their money out. And then there's this ginormous lag with them saying something. And I think, I assume the reason is that they were in a quiet period with the SEC. You are not supposed to be saying anything during a quiet period that could influence your stock price, which is what they would have been trying to do. They would have been trying to shore up the stock price and protect the valuation of the company. You're not supposed to be doing that kind of thing when you're in a quiet period. However, there's no real uh, specific penalty by the SEC for violating a quiet period. They'll, they'll figure out a way to punish you. Like They'll give you a fine if you are violating a quiet period leading up to an IPO. They might force you to delay the IPO. But none of those penalties well, are at the magnitude of your company failing. Exactly, right. Like, yes, I didn't know anyone was to get in trouble. But give, given what they were facing and given how, whether it's because they were observing a quiet period or just not particularly good at their jobs, they made it so much worse, right. um, the cost that they ended up enduring was vastly greater than whatever fine they would have faced. Right. Like, would I break a window and get in trouble? No. Would I break a window to get my friends out of a burning building? Yeah. It depends on which friends. But yeah. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they knew what to do, but they their lawyers uh, forbade them from doing so, and, and they were appropriately scared. Um, I'm the general counsel. You're the comms director at SVB. I'm saying to you, Lulu, I get it. You know, don't say anything patently false, but otherwise do what you need to do because people clearly are, are jumping off the ship quickly. Um, what would you have done? You think about who are the people who need to hear this message from you, um, who are most affected by emotion. So investors, analysts, bankers, government people, you're probably talking to them, I would hope. You're probably having like, deep regular conversations with them, and they understand the technicals mm -hmm. and are able to more evaluate the situation based on technicals. The people who are very susceptible to just acting on a meme and the grapevine uh, are the people who are your customers and the people who influence your customers. So it's like early stage startup founders and the VCs that serve them and that mm -hmm. they look up to. These are the people that are not, as I said this in my thread, they're not scrolling through Edgar. They're not reading your 8K. They are listening to what other people are saying. And so the energy that you spent crafting this beautiful AK is kind of worthless if you're not getting influencers to infiltrate their group chats. Like those signal chats and WhatsApp chats where people are in a frenzy over who's pulling their money out first, because that's what was happening all throughout Thursday. You got to identify the people who are going to be loud in those chats. It's very obvious who are the people who are vocal in group chats. You, you can tell who they are figure out like the 25 of them that you need to call 
five of you split up each of you call five people in two hours and make sure that they know the situation so that they can be the one speaking up in the group chat so two things one if you were to call them a what are you saying and b based on your point it's all about human psychology are they likely to then say oh because lulu took the time to call me to explain it i'm going to try to be helpful and generous or are they just like i think she's full of shit i'm going to say whatever i want to say i think the biggest thing is they're not don't rely on people just doing you a favor out of the goodness of your heart you have to frame it in a way that they're going to want to do it in their own self-interest so what's the thing that's in their self-interest like speaking up and being wrong and then eating shit later and being embarrassed not in their self-interest um what's in their self-interest is to be maybe a contrarian may be seen as standing up for tech at a time when tech is being pummeled just yeah. publicly and maybe it's being the person who has courage maybe it's being the person who understands the rules better than anybody else so let's say i'm talking to you and i know that you're the person who likes to defend tech and stand up for the tech industry and i know that you're the person who prides yourself on having financial acumen and so i would come to you and say the thing that other people don't understand but you would probably understand is that in almost all cases even if the very worst thing were to happen people get their money back and so this is a matter of standing strong for a pillar of the tech industry and, and what do you say when i say to you well the fdic limit is two hundred thousand dollars and now we know they covered everyone anyway but we didn't know that that thursday afternoon so you know hey lulu i, I run a business 250 wouldn't get me through one payroll i have a hundred times that amount my, my svb account what do you mean i'm gonna get my what I would say is that I, I would have researched all the other bank runs and bank failures throughout history, and I can tell you with confidence that history shows that even people who are over the FDIC limit still get all their money back. Got it. Is there any case that you're aware of where that hasn't happened? I know that there are cases where that hasn't happened, but I don't know who the specific people right. are. Right. I mean, and now breaking away from the contract for a second, and, and look, obviously I was an interested party here, but I never understood the sort of moral hazard claim that the people who didn't want the depositors to be made whole were making because look i get the idea that if you make a risky investment and it fails you should have to bear the risk of it right that's the whole point of taking risk and making investments you would certainly not sacrifice the upside if if, if you got it um but the entire economy runs on the money circulating through it that are deposits right mm -hmm. like literally if we all started putting our money under the mattress the whole country would shut down mm -hmm. So there clearly was no moral hazard to it. Um, do you think that was even a point that mattered, or do you think ultimately everyone was just so self-interested? And who are the people who would want to make the anti-moral hazard point as the way to sort of make themselves sound smart? Yeah. I think what happens is that whenever there's a big event, and we see this with shootings, we see this with wars, we see this with any big national event where there's a lot of conversation, I will take and you will take the thing that we've been advocating for for the past year and fit this, like retrofit this as a data point to support the thing. And so if my, and there's data about this too, like pe evangelicals who were against Trump positions suddenly decided I'm not saying all, but there's survey data that shows that they could now justify this yeah, because they thought sure. the, um, the candidate was worth it at the time. And so what people can do here is I think that the tech industry has run rampant and has it too easy. And therefore, this must be a data point to prove my point. And so if 
if we had been having a conversation about should people have to vet their own doctors and is it your fault if you are the victim of medical malpractice because you didn't vet the doctor's degree, we would never, that would never even be a topic. And I also think that if this had been a bank that were uh, serving small businesses in the Midwest, we wouldn't be having that kind of discourse. So it's just that there was an existing huge anti-tech sentiment that people use this as a data point to support. Um, so let's assume that some other regional bank, whether it's it's one that supports venture funds or, or small banks in the Midwest, is listening to this and saying, okay, I want to be prepared. Lulu, what should I do right now so that when the, if this should ever hit the fan, I have a plan? What should they do? They should be doing what car dealerships are really good at. Car dealerships are, in one sense, very fungible. Um, and they are under threat from newer entrants, you know, Tesla mm -hmm. is um, yeah. trying to up in that model. And what they do really well is they make themselves members of the community so that by standing up for the car dealership, you're actually standing up for your community. They're at the Little yeah. League games. They're sponsoring your kids' team sports. Have you sports. heard me say this? You swear to God, you haven't literally heard me use this, these exact no, this words. No, this is just our mind melt. Because, Tell me more. So we, the consult our consulting firm years ago, worked for Tesla to try to do direct-to-consumer sales to legalize it in each state. Oh, that's, that's probably and, the time that I was working for and, a car dealer. And the opponents were the car dealers. Yeah. And I wrote a chapter about this in my book where we went back to Tesla and said, look, you know, yeah, I know sort of the notion of car dealer sort of sounds like it, but the reality is it's what you just said. They sponsor the Little League team. They're in the 4th of July parade. You know, they may not be a huge check, but every time every elected official is running for office, they're giving them a thousand bucks or whatever it's supposed to give them. Mm -hmm. They are literally part of the community. Yes. You're some Silicon Valley interloper. The only way to win this is to make this really ugly and make them so toxic that all of a sudden all of the other stuff that they do doesn't really matter. And Tesla made the decision to say, um, you know what, we don't want to do that. That damage to our brand is greater than what we believe the upside would be if we passed this law. And I, I thought that was actually, so I thought that was actually a totally reasonable decision. I have a chapter in the, in the Fixer about it. I then get a call um, from Sam Teller, who at the time was Elon's chief of staff, saying the lawyers want to sue you <laughs> um, for violating confidentiality. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, you talked about our strategy. And I said, look, Sam, my lawyers read this and vetted it. They were cool with it. Uh, Random House's lawyers read this and vetted it. They wow. were cool with it. But please, please sue, sue me. me. Yeah, yes, I would have so many more too. fucking books. Yeah. And the minute I said that, they're like, "Oh right, we're not going to do you a favor." And that was that was the end of the conversation. But yeah, totally. So okay, so so you're you're leaning into it. So you, your argument then is it's not even just that you should be doing putting together a, a comms plan on a Google Doc somewhere. It's in, it's integrating yourself into the community itself. Yeah, and the Google Doc can have these are the leaders of the community. So if you think about why it's so hard to get rid of some sort of insurgent movement, if you're trying to crush them and you're trying to keep them down, the reason it's so hard to get rid of them is that because they're among the people and you can't distinguish one from a farmer, right? And the people are protecting them. The way you would do that here is you figure out who are the, the equivalent of the tribal elders in your community, the people that people, you know, the guy who runs the hardware store, the pastor, uh, and you want to make sure that you become friends with them, that they understand your business and appreciate it, understand how hardworking you are. And then you should have a Google Doc where it says on 4th of July, I'm going to check in and on Thanksgiving, I'm going to send them turkeys or whatever it is. But that should be the shape of the Google Doc, not press releases or whatever. 
And, and why do you think Corey asked this one too? Why do you think that concept? Because what the listeners are saying that makes sense, and yet from a comm strategy standpoint, what you just said is actually radical, right? Because like yeah. you're going to do something there's nothing to do with Twitter or uploading a press release or, or whatever, talking to a reporter. Yeah, calling a reporter. So why do you guys feel like that would seem so fucking crazy, even though it's so logical? Well, when you were saying this, it made so much sense to me. In a previous life, I worked at City Bike. That's such an institution mm-hmm. here in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's something that it's an iconic brand, and there's tons of press written about it every day. When there's free bike ride day, or you know, a block doesn't like that they're installing a station there. And when we were doing press for City Bike. Yes, we're doing press talking to reporters, but yes, we are on the ground talking to the block associations. We are on the we are on the ground. Um, talking to the PTAs, talking to the schools, we're talking to elected officials offices. We're constantly doing these touch points because we knew if we're not on the ground figuring out who's in the neighborhood, figuring out who the decision makers are, we're going to have a crisis or a bad story, you know, a week or two later. And I think it's it's when we talked about this on our prep call, it's it's people who work in comms and realize comms is more than talking to a reporter, speaking to their editor, getting coffee with someone who you know, has an official title at a legacy media outlet, like that's where you really can succeed at comms mm-hmm. and that's where you prevent the crises. And that's, I mean, so much more strategic and so much more, you know, of the fuller picture of how you can see results and prevent, you know, emergencies. Totally agree. All right. So let's let's move off of SVB. TikTok. I'm now making you the communications director for TikTok. They are, it seems like on the precipice of being banned in the U.S., they've been banned in other countries. Um, They're calling you right now and saying, all right, we are where we are. We can't take back mistakes that we've made. What do we do going forward to fix this? What's your advice? I would immediately not take that call because I'm not registered under FARA. However, someone uh, who is talking to them, I think, should remind them about the same principles as SVB, which is, what's the thing you want to achieve? In this case, not get banned. Therefore, who are the people who can help you achieve that outcome? In this case, regulators. Yeah. And what is it that they believe now? Like, what is what it's what I call their cultural erogenous zones. You have to understand what they are, mm-hmm. and then how do you um, interact your message with that to make them think the thing that's going to make them do the thing? So, what this actually looks like is when they had their CEO come to Washington, they did a couple things. One is they had their CEO who is very charming and articulate, mm-hmm. nice looking guy, and you know, seems very earnest. They had him record a video directly to users yep. before he went into the hearing. The second thing they did was they have been emphasizing 150 million users. They did it before the hearing, in the hearing, and they did it afterwards with this big blog post. If you are an American company and you want to talk about how many people rely on your services, go for it, seems to make sense. If you understand that the cultural erogenous zone for Congress right now is being able to stick it to China more than all of their colleagues, then you would understand that saying, we actually have a shit ton more users than you thought. You thought we were big? We're bigger than that. Yeah. You, th- you were worried that we're influencing your teens? We're influencing more teens than you thought. It's not going to play well. And so what I would have them do is de-emphasize that huge 150 million number mm-hmm. and focus on the 5 million number, which is 5 million U.S. businesses are making money off of TikTok. And other things like that, uh, that are that this app is helping to contribute to your economy, as opposed to the thing that they're already scared of, 
read the room, people are scared that you are influencing too many American teens and you're leading with this huge number. How many do you think they would have to be able to mobilize to, to overcome the anti-China sentiment? So there's some number between zero and 150 million, but if they all reach out to every member of Congress mm -hmm. or to, to wherever they you know, are, it would have a clear impact, mm -hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, if every elected official is making every choice solely based on their re-election and nothing else, bashing China looks good, makes you look smart, um, but, you know, sacrificing 10,000 votes in the next primary because you just pissed off all these people, that's more harmful than, than yeah. bashing China is, is beneficial. Right. How many would they have to mobilize, you think, to actually move the needle on this? I don't know, but I think it's less about how many than about how powerful the people are. So okay. if you mobilize one D'Amelio family, that's worth like another 100 million people. So I think it's find the people for force multipliers because yep. you could either get to 1,000 people or you could get a message that's powerful enough that 10 people will want to each share it with 10 people who share it with 10 people and it goes from there. And that's even better because then it's less your fingerprints on it and it's more Americans carrying the message of what it's doing for them as opposed to you saying, our users, which is now you're putting your possessive pronoun over American citizens, which is not a good look. And you're having this charming CEO, which another th thing that backfires is normally a CEO is articulate and charming and it wins people over in an atmosphere of suspicion where they think that where Congress thinks that you're trying to manipulate people, having someone very articulate and charming is another thing that backfires. So away from the CEO, away from TikTok talking and more getting a message that TikTok users are going to want to carry, and it can't be they're shilling for TikTok and they're shilling for a Chinese company. It has to be, I'm standing up for fairness. Okay. I'm standing up for consistency. I'm standing up against uh, bias toward one particular company, and I'm standing up for my own livelihood and economic output. That kind of, I don't know, just spitballing, maybe it's something else, right? But that's the kind of thing where they're speaking from their own voice in their own self-interest. All right, AI. So, you know, uh, Microsoft is sort of the lead investor in OpenAI. Uh, well, I assume there are various walls. You are you know, head of comps at a company that's attempting to be acquired by Microsoft. So either they have been calling you, or if not, they will. They, let's pretend in this scenario they are calling you and saying, okay, we have this thing. It's amazing. It's terrifying. Ooh, there's a lot we don't understand about it. Um, but we also know that it's it's potentially going to get hit with lots of different regulations that we'd rather not have simply because people aren't sure what to do. And I think one of the best arguments is we just saw Google call for AI regulations, which means our product is so shitty and far behind that we need to try to slow Microsoft down <laughs> through regulations because we can't compete in the free market. Um, what would your advice be? So my advice is, this is from, from the cheap seats, because uh, the Microsoft team is handling this independently, and they're doing an awesome job. Like, I'm very impressed by yep. the Microsoft comms team. Mm -hmm. um, so this is just, as a spectator, thinking about AI in general, I would look at what happened with crypto and make sure that, in general, we try to do the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So what happened with crypto was that regulators were and are relatively uninformed, that there's no clear points of contact. You hear a lot about uh, no clear point of... Um, centralized you know decision making about crypto so it's like you're you're fighting windmills from a thousand different directions um and then there's also a lot of public fear there's a lot of misunderstanding there's regulation by enforcement and there's this meme of no use case which is starting to bubble up in ai a little bit with people saying there's there's uh no practical use case people are just using this for entertainment it's not huge yet and hopefully it doesn't become big but if i'm uh in the ai industry 
and I'm looking at what happened with crypto and thinking about how do we avoid some of those things as a new technology that's even more groundbreaking um, yeah. if you're in, in AI, then I would be thinking about um, educating regulators around the world, which sounds very obvious, but how do you do it? You and I in the DC world would think about briefing the briefers yeah. and looking at who are around those people and finding like the five people that influence this guy's opinion and then yep. getting those five people by and so that they hear so that the guy hears it from his five people as opposed to just us who are clearly self-interested. You'd have a strategy for educating them through those means. You'd have a big like public comfort building strategy where you get users to almost like a free trial somehow you find an excuse that they would have to use the technology and in a productive way where they have a good experience and then let them be your evangelist. And you want to curate who your initial evangelists are. Like you want to take the people who are the most credible and influential and then make sure that they're the first wave out with their impressions before God knows what um, jumps in with their impression. This is what happened with Twitter Blue, which is instead of having a few uh, trusted, credible people say, I've used the product, it worked really well. It was some of the loudest voices out the gate or the loudest events were yeah. impersonations and people posting Nazi stuff and that then set the tone. So if you're um, trying to shape the conversation around AI, you would want to curate who are the people who become physical representations of your movement that you want to present as ambassadors before everybody else jumps in. And do you think right now those people are sort of gettable because they don't even realize that they are the manifestations? So they don't realize kind of how much leverage or power they might have. And like how, assuming that the world works the way it usually does, which is your advice will be followed, but four years too late or whatever it is. Um, what what would be like the one thing right now if, if you know your colleagues at OpenAI were listening? It's just like, look, just make sure that you can prevent this or do this and everything else will probably be okay. I think prime people to set expectations about things that could happen that are negative and why that's normal. So that when negative things inevitably happen, people don't see that and freak out and think it undermines your entire thesis. So present upfront, here are all the things that could potentially happen. Here's how to think about them and that they're right. part of the process. Car crashes are a part of having cars. We need cars for X, Y, Z, as opposed to, hey, I invented this thing called cars. Day one, it crashes. People freak out. How right. do you think, I mean, we saw some negative response uh, to some uh, that pretty crazy New York Times story with uh, the reporter Kevin Roost using chat, was it? I don't know if it was the Bing version or ChatGPT. The Leave Your Wife one? Yeah. I think it was, I thought it was ChatGPT. With all the no, creepy. No, it was, no, it was the Bing one. It, it was, was Leave Your Wife. With all right. the creepy emojis at yeah. the end. Um, that was, I think, sort of the moment, because it was it, everything was really fun with AI and ChatGPT. Then this new product came on, maybe was released before it was ready for prime time. It was, there was a daily episode about it. There was tons of follow-up articles in the Times about it. That seems, from my point of view, like a, comms crisis, yet things are still chugging along really fast with, with AI. Is there something that happened in that case that you think allowed Bing or got Bing to recover? And like, how, how did, how did they, what did they do right if everything is moving forward still? 
Well, I'm not I'm not behind the scenes um, on that stuff. We have a pretty sacred firewall. I know Frank and the team, so I wouldn't put it past them that just through sheer brilliance and relationships with reporters, they were able to work some magic uh, behind the scenes. I will say that AI also has the benefit of being so fast moving that there's some new groundbreaking headline like five hours later. So if one thing happens, some other thing will just happen in another four hours and you'll move on to the next. Yeah, it'll take everyone's time. Let me lean into then this question for both of you guys, what you were just saying, which is, so I have a theory, broad-based theory on comms, which is the best spin is almost always no spin, right? And the reality is most reporters want to know what happened and why, but they're less concerned about sort of the, like, what it actually was. They just want to feel like they understand the story and that they're not being lied to. Mm -hmm. And if you can just explain what something is, including all the downsides and risks, and was, and by the way, I always often find that when I fuck something up, the best way to get out of trouble is I just own it. Like, yeah, yeah I fucked it up. Um, and I'll say, well, all right, well, he owned it, right? Um, so therefore, the argument I'm going to make to the listeners is most of the time you're trying to figure out how is it you should be framing something to the press? Just tell them the fucking truth. Yeah. What do you it's think? It's radical. Yeah. I agree with you. But I also agree that that seems radical. And you asked a question a few minutes ago about why these things that are fairly common sense kind of seem radical across the industry. And I think that a lot of it is we're cosplaying PR people from the 50s or something. Like We, we all have this... <laughs> image of this platonic ideal of a, of a comms person that's on the phone with reporters giving them the spin and yelling at them for getting a story wrong that's i don't know where this comes from and maybe it worked once upon a time but that's not the thing we should be aspiring to and in some sense experience is actually baggage because it might be experience doing the wrong thing you might be bringing something from 20 years ago that doesn't apply now that is now just an encumbrance so i think uh, you asked about my comms experience. I, I actually have very little of it. My, the people that I've hired all have more years of service and comms than I do. And I think that can be a benefit because you're sort of free to make mistakes and learn new stuff in the process. Do you feel like you have to push people who have a lot of experience in the industry to rethink this a little bit and just sort of make it simpler? Or do most of them sort of know this already? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Um... It's a really good question. I would say... <laughs> that is a good question, Bradley. Thank I, you. I think this. I think at least in terms of like all the comps people we have at, at Tusk, I think you guys, Corey, and everyone else who does it in different different ways, I think inherently get it. I think, Selection I think bias. So, you seek out those that's people. That's true. But I think <laughs> also what happens sometimes is it's probably easier for me to be like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking tell them we failed, than it is for the comps person to tell the boss to say that. Mm -hmm. Right, like mm -hmm. yeah. because I happen to be both the boss and a comms person, like I, I sort of see this and get this, but I think suggesting it to someone who doesn't inherently already know how this stuff works might might be a little harder. People, leadership does set this does set the tone, yeah. and you will see, especially with tech startups, the founder, the CEO, sets the tone for the whole comms of the company, which is great. Um, and in comms team, the leader of the comms team sets the tone, so you are. You attract people like Corey. Not only do you recruit people like Corey, and you probably have a good gig here, but like he would want to work with someone like he you because you have the vibe alignment. <laughs> no, but same with me. Like the people that I want to recruit and the people who want to work with me are all people who have the same kind of outlook. Right. So it kind of it it it, it feeds onto itself. Yeah. You want to have the reputation with reporters that you're the kind of flack that's going to tell them the truth, 
even if you have to apologize once because you got the truth wrong, but you apologize, then the person that's always speaking out of two sides of their mouth, never giving them anything clear. You might be nice, but if you're not giving them useful information or you're trying to pull a fast one on them, that's a reputation that's going to follow you for a really long time. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you have like some history in politics. Um, what do you think, if you were advising Joe Biden right now, uh, for his, his presidential campaign for the comms, right? Or let's just make you the comms director now. Um, what's, you know, the, he's he's at 38% approval, it's sort of his average. He's sort of stuck there. Nothing's really budging one way or the other. And they said, okay, Lulu, how do we move the needle here? What would you tell him? Oh, Biden came from behind the last, I kind of counted Biden out the last time, you yeah, remember. He was like stuck in third, stuck in yeah, third, and then yeah. he just became, everybody else had some disqualifying reason he became that. Yeah, al although one of those things that happened was a global pandemic that shut down the entire world. Like, I think, I, I think that that played perfectly for him. There's black all swans. Because look, Bernie had won the first few primaries, and then I think everyone's like, wait, this guy can't actually be in charge if there's a real problem. Um, and then that sort of just sort of folded into, into Biden. Well, I'll answer, and then I, I want you to give a better answer, too, because you've been closer to this stuff. But I think that his greatest weakness is that people think he's really old and doddering. It's not that people have tremendous personal animosity towards him. Or people yeah. thought he makes mistakes. But the primary thing is just like he's too old and is he with it? That's the criticism. And so I think if you were to address that criticism head on, you would put him in settings where he's in his natural state of uh, being happy and optimistic where he gets to show energy, where he's drawing energy from whoever's around and then surround him with people that are helping to make him look good and showing that he's got the talent of assembling a strong bench of solid advisors around him so that you don't have to pin all of your hopes on a guy who's almost 80. Uh, and then the other thing is once we see who's on the other side of the roster at the, running against him, then you can figure out what the contrasts are. But I think the single, single biggest thing is that he just is perceived as the oldest guy. Even against Trump, he just seems older. Yeah, he comes off that way. It kind of wanders into the, maybe you just lean into it. Like, yeah, of, of course I'm, I'm older than the average president. At the same time, in this incredibly divisive world and environment, we've been able to accomplish A, B, C, D, and E um, because we understand what to do, right? In some ways, it's too bad that he was part of the Obama world because otherwise you can contrast it and say, the Trump world, he didn't know what he was doing. It was just fucking chaos and disaster. Obama didn't know what he was doing, and they just ultimately didn't get that much done, right? They got the American Affordable Care Act done, and then very little after that, the next seven years. Um, and here I have sort of quietly achieved, you know, massive gains on climate, on infrastructure. I had the balls to pull us out of Afghanistan. I've handled this Ukraine thing um, incredibly well. And yeah, and, and maybe, by the way, especially if Trump is the opponent and Right now, that's what you would have to assume that he will be. I mean, he's not a spring chicken either. Yeah. Um, so may maybe you just lean into it. The other one would be to say, you know what? Um, I may be old, but I'm actually radical. And say, like, for example, on Afghanistan, Trump knew we should have pulled out. Obama knew we should have pulled out. Neither of them had the balls to do it. Because I'm so fucking old, I don't give a shit. But don't right. you think that there's enough of the country that hates that Afghanistan decision, that that wouldn't be the no. thing? Or maybe it's something else. But I, it's... 
Yeah, yeah. Or like the EPA rule requiring all electric cars, sixty-six percent of all cars to be electric by twenty thirty-two, right? Like that's fucking radical, right? Um, and so maybe you actually lean into it and say, you know, I might be old, but I'm doing shit that's that's vastly more innovative than than what you're used to. You've said before that all politicians are basically get elected machines, get yeah. reelected machines. Um, so I wonder if there's an angle here of like I'm so clearly at the end of my career. I mean, the presidency is the pinnacle anyway, but right. but I am here to really just buckle down. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. I, I have the freedom to just do what's right because I'm done, I'm old, I've seen it all, um, and I'm just playing for history, quite frankly, because I will probably be dead before the term's even over, so therefore, mm. or, you know. Or what, uh, if, yeah, what if not, you know, I'm old and radical, but I'm old and normal the other side wants to pick a fight with mickey mouse. the other side wants to pick a fight with mickey mouse every other day the other side is running uh, bulldozers over bud light cans the other right. side is trying to ban you know abortion bills in the mail like i'm old but like i am what the i am the norm of what we want here in america look at how crazy the other side is you know here's a thought yeah. related to that right now so I'd mentioned cultural erogenous zones and the stuff that people already care about regardless of whether you exist or not People right now are in a big throwback mode. Power Rangers throwback, intentionally looking all jankety like the 90s, clothes throwback, music throwback. Everything is like yearning yearning for a more innocent time of a few decades ago. And so actually maybe he uses uh, his being around for a while of like, I come from an era of politics where it was more civil, where it was more sane in a way. Where like I think most people would say that they would like politics to have more of the civility of several decades ago than just how frenetic and vile it can be right now. So every politician who's in office and failing, especially if you're in the executive branch, in, in based on my experience, has said the same thing, which is, we're doing a great job, we're just not getting the message out, right? Right, they always, their first thing is throw all the comms people under Companies the bus. Companies do that too. Right, it's not that, that, it's not that we're not good. We gotta it's tell just our this, story. Yeah, we just did that. Um, what are they, what, okay, fine. What should they be doing differently? Sometimes the medium is the message. Sometimes it's, hey, you, the founder, I'll take it back to tech. If you think that the message isn't getting out, let's build you an audience and then you just get it out, right? Um, so I think from day one of the company, everybody should be thinking about what is the audience that we want to build? Let's curate that. And then by the time you're two years in, which is probably when you start getting attacks and more criticism, you start getting more of the spotlight, then you have these people who already have a, a history with you and you have your own audience that you're not just bent over a barrel by the press who may or may not know you or like you, get your message out, just post it. So I think a big part of that is getting the uh, founder of the company comfortable or getting, it, it, it might be the CTO, maybe it's the chief commercial officer, whatever it is, like someone should be speaking for the company and getting them ready to do that at a moment's notice. Yeah, and saying things that, that the part of it I also find, I'm sure, sure you do, is, you know, the comms people want us to do one thing, the lawyers always want to do the other, and then the CEO or whoever it is tends to listen to the lawyers more because they went to law school or whatever. Like, by the way, I went to law school, it's not that fucking helpful. Um, but, uh, and as a result, they often end up sort of sinking themselves because the lawyer's instinct is just to say no to everything and be, take the most risk-averse position possible, which oftentimes creates more harm than good. Um, how do you overcome the lawyers when you're in the room in these situations? 
I think it's really worth the lawyers and the comms people spending a tremendous amount of time together. So at our firm, we are just like this. We're hanging out all the time. We're talking, texting, you know, our my legal counterpart, we're texting, calling multiple times a day. What that does is a couple things. We understand how the other thinks. He's been educating me on some of the legal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. boundaries that we just have to abide by when it comes to talking about the deal. Um, even mm-hmm. when you, you've seen me post uh, you've probably seen me post like memes about our acquisition, which yep. is not typical, but these memes have been run through legal and have gotten all of the proper approvals because they had a strategic purpose. He and I collaborate that way, and then I will share my thinking. So establishing that groundwork before you need it is super important. That way, and I'm sure you've been in this situation too, that way if a crisis hits, you're not trying to get to know each other and establish trust in the moment in the fog of war. So that's one. The other one is together thinking about the full range of risk assessment because it's not just optimizing for legal risks. You have to think about all of the other risks. So if if um, the legal risk is if we do this, we might get a lawsuit. Right. Okay, that's one vector. Uh, if we don't do this, we might lose this kind of trust and attract this kind of scrutiny that then leads to some amount of decrease in our value that actually is like 10 times what we would have paid to settle that lawsuit. So working together to think about the full universe of right. risks lets you assess that better as opposed to just one And you know, And do you feel dimension. like founders and CEOs that you deal with are sort of able to understand the big picture or are they just typically kind of swayed by the lawyers? I think they are. If, if people take the time to explain it and talk through it, I think comms people need to learn to, to stand up and add a voice. I've found that lawyers are happy to hear you out and there's always going to be that debate. Yeah. If you have conviction and you bring data and you bring a case, as opposed to the thing that you're describing can happen to business executives where they say, oh shit, this person's a lawyer. I better... That happens to comms people too. Comms people will say, this person's a lawyer, I better back down, they know what they're talking about. As opposed to, in this case, I I have something else to contribute that isn't currently being considered, I'm gonna throw it in there, but do it with conviction and not in this mealy-mouthed, annoying kind of way. So you and I have been talking a little bit about kind of what the comms industry looks like in a few years once tools like AI are, are fully deployed. Um, g- give me your sort of prediction for in, in five years, the industry will be meaningfully different in these ways. I think something like ChatGPT is an extinction level event for the PR industry as we know it. Already, people are fed up with this industry. People who are in agencies are being told that they're not delivering what they need to deliver by in-house people. In-house people are being told by founders that you're not giving me the thing that I need. Yeah. Founders are being told by comms people you're not giving up. Like, there's something just, and by the way, the press is annoyed through all of this. They get terrible pitches clogging up their inboxes. They get angry calls because somebody thinks that the press should have written a press release for them as opposed to doing independent reporting, or like this is a hit piece. No, it's not. All of this noise and junk, people are frustrated. And against that backdrop, you drop in ChatGPT, which can do a lot of the things that the traditional comms function uh, claim to do. Yeah. I think we're gonna navigate this really extinction level event in a couple of different ways. Door number one is adapt, door number two is become obsolete. The adapt looks like this. If you look at the jobs that are the most and least likely to be displaced by AI, the jobs that are the most likely to be displaced are like tax accountants, clerks, uh, insurance processors, and then the jobs that are least likely to be displaced by AI are physical therapists, choreographers, 
um, counselors and like emotional yeah. therapists. Uh, and the theme there is the jobs that are least likely to be displaced have creativity and a human touch. Yeah. Right now, when you look at press releases and blog posts that are being put out or corporate messages like that Anheuser-Busch was non-statement recently where nobody could figure out what they were saying, that could have been written by ChatGPT and better. <laughs> and so I urge everyone to today plug your parameters for a recent blog post into ChatGPT. And if it produces something that you think like, oh, I could put this out, that should terrify you. So the human element, the trusted advisor counselor element, because a lot of these jobs that are least likely to be displaced by AI are counselor jobs, physical therapist, nurse, uh, like not, not the doctor, the nurse, the person who walks you through this stuff, uh, the choreographer. It's like people giving you advice on a human level. Those are the types of skills that will keep comms relevant and alive as an industry. So you're a 19-year-old comms major in college right now. You listen to this podcast. Is the advice, you should probably think about a different line of work because huge, huge percentage of this industry is not going to be exist in, in five years? Or is it, look, there's more opportunity than ever. You just need to sort of probably ignore everything they're teaching you in class and, and then do this differently. I think it becomes high stakes. I think it becomes go big or go home because I think the, the industry is going to consolidate so that there are some big winners that yeah. like sweep up everybody. Like I am the person to do this thing for AI. Everybody's going to come here. Um, and then everybody else will go away. And so or maybe not go away, but kind of stagnate. Yeah. And so I think that if you're thinking about going into these, this industry, think about what are the growth opportunities that'll be big. If I can thrive in that, I should go in and go big. If I can't, I should choose something else. Entirely. And nobody knows anything that AI comes, right? So you could be 19, but if you sort of really bury yourself in it, you still might be able to be the most credible expert to advise a CEO or whoever it is, mm -hmm. because it's not like anyone else has a decade's worth of experience doing this. Yeah. One of the people that I hired on my team uh, was and is one of the best people to ever do crypto and web three comms everybody went to her if she had gone instead of coming to work with me if she had gone to go start a crypto web three comms company she could have had like a near monopoly over time i think she was that good and so if you Does have she regrets not doing that <laughs> i think she's happy yeah, she likes working she with people who think this way right she came for the people i do this for people i think it's like earlier the, the teams attract people who are like right. each other but if you're a 19-year-old thinking about getting into this industry, it's no longer everybody can succeed decently by doing okay. It's either you're going to become a gazillionaire that is in extremely high demand or you're going to become near irrelevant in the next five years. Corey, what do you advise the 19-year-old? My first piece of advice would be do not work. At, you're the run-of-the-mill PR agency. I think that is, I think even before AI, that is the worst type of training um, Why? to be successful in this career. You're becoming a, a, you are becoming a machine to just crank out press releases. Like the, the the strategic part of comms and the value out of comms is not going through a spreadsheet and making a media list or you know starting as really junior and putting together a press release because AI is as you said like doing that right now. You need to get a specialty. You need to get on the ground experience. You need to like be on the street whether it's meeting with reporters or people in the community, like building your network and being, you know, down at the bottom of the rung of the ladder, not building your network at an agency is not going to get you there. What can AI not do? Like AI doesn't 
plan events or conferences. You know, AI, you know, isn't going to fully yeah. use a podcast. Yeah. Hey, can AI, are they going to produce a podcast? Are we, is, is are this, we getting rid of, are we it, getting rid of, say, is, is this when we reveal to the listeners that this is all been AI? <laughs> are we getting rid of Hugo? No. Like, Hugo's not even a real person. The, the, I mean, you need to, you need to figure out the, especially as the, the, the media industry continues to shrink, you know, the BuzzFeed layoffs, insider layoffs, like, how are you creating your own channels for comms? Like, can you put together like a podcast plan? If you're, if you're going to a company and saying like, I have the experience building a podcast from scratch, it's a really you know, cost-effective way to start a whole new communications channel, that's a value add. And AI, for the moment, can't get that off the ground, produce it you know, once, twice a week. So you need to think of what the value adds are and you need to get that on the ground. Sort of, you need to have like grit. And like you know that, Bradley, from working in city government i worked in city government like that is where you sort of become and, inspector and, and gadget it, you're right and, and it learn is, all it's, that it's stuff. interesting right it's a kind of thing where there's a you know a crisis that happens overnight in a city park or whatever it is you do need a human being at two in the morning to figure out like you can't there's no real algorithm for sort of like oh what do we do when something it's it it works really well for the expected i think AI, right and then i think where it gets a little where there's a need for humans so i think also it's if you have, there are different types of personalities, right? And if you have the kind of personality where you really like change, things happening fast, you know, having to sort of rethink everything on the fly, I think you then, to, your, to the point that both of you made, have sort of permanent value, right? If you like things very predictable and structured, um, yeah, computers can be able to do that a lot better than you are probably already. Let me ask you something, Bradley. What do you think is the right way to interact with the media? Um, few things. So I guess it depends a little bit on obviously what, what to your very point at the beginning, what, what your goal is, right? But so for me, we use the media here very, very aggressively um, to power almost everything we do, right? So we have a belief that more is generally more, right? And that it doesn't really matter whether someone is talking to me or, or about me, whether it's about venture investing or political campaigns or uh, philanthropic work we do, or bookstores, or, or anything else, it just all produces this underlying view of like, okay, these people really know what the fuck they're talking about. And, and it, the thing that I realized mm -hmm. was sort of our, that we did a good job on the fund with comms isn't even so much just all of the deal flow that does come every time I'm on Squawk Box and fine, great. Mm -hmm. but the amazing thing about it is it's not even that, it's I'm on Squawk Box talking about crypto regulation, whatever it is I'm on for that day. Um, what founders are hearing is just like, oh, this is the guy that understands this stuff. Mm -hmm. And their thing could be in health tech or gambling or energy or whatever it is. When we compete to win deals, no one ever, ever asks us to sort of show that we can achieve the regulatory thing that we're talking about. It is just assumed that we know how to do it. And then it's a question of are we willing to pay enough to win the deal, you know, whatever other factors. Or it might be that... For some companies, regu regulation is the existential question, and we're the only people you want investing. And at other times, it's you know it's an issue, but there might integration might bring other value in different ways that that's greater than ours. Um, so one is is I, I think it all builds onto itself. So that's one. Two, you know, transparency. I think the Corey's point earlier when reporters at least talk to me, I'm going to tell them what I think. Right now, I might say off the record if I don't think I should say it publicly. Sometimes I say things publicly that I probably should have said off the record. 
Um, I need to be more careful about that sometimes. But, but I like that approach. Just to cut in, I like that approach because you're making the mistakes of commission rather than being risk averse all the time and missing 10,000 opportunities that you wouldn't even yeah, have. Yeah, I think like, for, that's for me at least, I can, I can think of a couple of specific things that I wish if I had just said specifically off the record a couple of times more on the front end, it probably would have served me better. Um, but yeah, so it's it's being aggressive, it's being transparent, um, it's being counterintuitive, right? So like, for example, mm. my columns, whether it's a fast company, the Daily News, whatever else, is basically like when I, something's happening in the world and I'm like, no, it should be this, not that. That's when I write. And the truth is once I have the hard parts, the thought, right? The writing of the column is, is easy. I can fly through it because it's more, you know, do I have a take on this that's, that's totally different from else? And having the willingness to, to say it. And I think also partly it's understanding that when you put yourself out there, there's a lot to be gained. I think a huge amount of our business, our philanthropy, our activism, everything we're doing is, is powered by media. Um, and I also get attacked, right? And there are people in the world who don't, who don't like me. I think in general they don't know me, but they don't, they mm -hmm. don't like what they believe to be true about me. Um, it's like rule 34 of the internet. Like if it exists, there's porn of it. It's if it exists in the public consciousness, there are people who are outraged and fed up and yeah, pissed off. And it's, like just, it's sort of fine, right? And so I, I would say if, if you're willing to accept all of that, look, I mean, in our philanthropy, the reason why I think we're having really outsized results, especially what we're doing on, on hunger, where we're, you know, running bills to mandate things like universal school meals, where Ultimately, what's been called $5 million of my money has helped us pass bills to unlock about a billion and a half a year mm. in government money towards hunger mm -hmm. is we're willing to combine politics and philanthropy, right? Mm -hmm. And we're willing to do things that might be controversial, might get us criticized, um, especially on mobile voting. I get the shit kicked out of me all the time on that. Um, we're willing to forego the tax deductions, mm. right? Because we're doing things that are considered political. But as a result, I think we're achieving results that are totally nonlinear compared to what we're spending. Yeah, right? and this is comms by other means, right? These are these are results that you could be trying to achieve through press releases, blog posts, whatever, but through creativity, through engaging with policymakers, through using money strategically, you can get these same results. It's like the local car, car dealership strategy. Right, right, always comes back to the Always car the car dealer. dealerships. All right, Lou, how do people follow you? They can find me at Flack, so getflack.com. That's where I write. Uh, always, uh, my never-ending goal is to write more frequently than I do. Uh, and Twitter, Lulu Missouri. There you go. Cool. All right, Lou, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Corey.